Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Day by day, slowly but somehow inexorably, the green sill scandal and satellite stories of cronyism, chamocracy and outright corruption is growing, folding into itself and collapsing like a political black hole, sucking into it an ever-increasing number of players. It's fair to say the only reason we know about it is the dogged work of dedicated journalists in the Financial Times and the Times. It's also fair to say that the subject is complex and esoteric, and that has been another obstacle to the story getting even bigger. Nothing as simple and catchy as a duck house to be found here. To help us unravel the story's many folds, we have two of those brilliant news hounds with us today. From the Financial Times, Cynthia Merku and Andy Bounds. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> okay, let's start with a little bit of context. So, Andy, what is supply chain finance? Yeah, supply chain finance is not particularly new. Uh, any freelancer who's tried to get a payment out of a company will know you often have to wait a long time. And what businesses have done for a long time is um, some of them have taken the invoice and taken it to a financier who will say, I will pay you the money now, in return for which I will take a fee and I will go and collect it from the person who's paying you. Now, what supply chain finance did was turn that on its head. So the company tells its suppliers, you can take your invoice. My inv- your, your invoice is going via someone like uh, Greensill. They will pay you uh, and I will settle up with them later. And Greensill tends to get a cut. The innovation that Greensill brought to it as well was to package up a lot of these payments as bonds and sell them on to investors. And therefore, a bit like if you remember the mortgage securities in in, in America, which started the 2008 financial crisis, the mortgage itself went wrong. And then the person on the hook for it wasn't the bank which gave the mortgage, but the investors that it sold it on to. And that's what started to happen with Greensill. Why is the practice controversial, Cynthia? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to use supply chain finance. I think the problem that is apparent more so now, is the lack of transparency around it, but especially how it gets treated in the accounts of the companies. So it's quite a common tool now to use supply chain finance. But what happens is that if a company, for example, has a whole bunch of debt, it's not actually listed as debt in the accounts. So it can, for example, be treated as a trade payable or an accounts payable in a balance sheet but it's not actually necessarily broken down from other invoices or other bills that it has to pay to other suppliers. So this Mm. is not actually broken out. So you don't know how much it owes to a supply chain financing company. It can be a lot of hidden debt because there's no requirement to disclose the details. And so accountancy firms and regulators have become aware of this and have started thinking about ways to change that. The bottom line is that it really... masks or it can mask the true financial state of a company. As you might remember, Carillion fell over back in 2018 and they'd used a lot of supply chain finance. I understand there's a criminal complaint in Germany at the moment. Yes. So this is against Greensill Bank and that's underway now. There were concerns about the level of its exposure to Sanjeev Gupta's GFG alliance. They have not said that there's any uh, legal complaint against GFG alliance, to make that clear. But the bank itself is under investigation and uh, a lot of the supply chain financing funding came via 
Greensill Bank in Germany. And this is, I think, important because Cameron didn't get over-enthusiastic sort of lobbying to save the white rhinoceros. So it matters, doesn't it, that he was lobbying on behalf of a company whose practices are, is it fair to say, are a little bit controversial? A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's true to say that a lot of politicians like these innovative companies which say we can do things better, quicker, sharper than the competition. We might be used to a politician going off and working for Barclays or Shell, you know, after they retire. And whatever scandals those companies get caught up in, they are big listed businesses with long track records and very, you know, quite transparent accounts that that people pick up on quite quickly. I think what's happened now is you've got politicians getting involved with very recent privately held companies that are a little bit harder to track and, Mm. and obviously have a shorter track record. And therefore, you know, things can go wrong in a spectacular way. Okay, let's begin before the collapse and the scandal getting out with what we're finding out now was really an extraordinary presence in number 10, in David Cameron's number 10 by Lex Grinsill as a sort of quasi-advisor with his own office and his own business cards while also running this company. Cynthia, can you give us a, a summary of that? Yeah. So one of the core people who helped Greensill pave the way into his connections into government was a very powerful civil servant called Jeremy Haywood. He passed away, uh, sadly, a couple of years ago. But he was working with Greensill at Morgan Stanley before Greensill set up um, his eponymous company. And he, he was you know, one of the most powerful civil servants in Whitehall. And he kind of took Greensill under his wing. Also in relation to Cameron working with Greensill, one of the things is, is Greensill is a, an amazing salesman. I mean, everybody we speak to is, is saying how persuasive he is and how much of a huge salesman he is. So I think people were also lulled in by him. He obviously came in and he had his business card, uh, number 10 business card with a number 10 address. For me, the big thing as well is, you know, we in early March, we wrote a big story about uh, how Greensill's collapse was revealing the government ties. And I'd actually done a freedom of information request back last July, because what had stuck out for me is that Greensill had so many meetings in cabinet office, meetings every six months at least that were disclosed. And we don't know, obviously, whether there were others that did not get disclosed. Mm. But that was a very odd thing because I didn't see their competitors having, you know, what was dubbed, for example, regular catch-ups with senior civil servants. And I have still not got a response to that Freedom of Information Act request. Now, on the Treasury side, there was also a lot of meetings. And my request originally was also rejected. And it was only when Greensill started to it became very clear that Greensill was not going to probably survive that um, based on an internal review. They they gave me the material that showed that uh, Greensill had tried to get access to the CCFF, the Bank of England, a coronavirus, um, you know, state-backed, um, mm. you know, uh, loans um, underwriting. Cynthia, why why is Greensill collapsing? I mean, apart from, it sounds like quite a rickety business model, but w- was there a particular catalyst that caused it to cascade? 
Green Sills, you know, one of the major clients is Sanjeev Gupta's GFG Alliance. You know, we're talking about billions and billions. And I don't know whether I would say necessarily his, you know, the business model is rickety. The question is, who are your counterparties? How much due diligence is there done? How secure is is that side of things? Now, with Greensill last year, that Greensill's insurance company was saying that it was going to not renew its insurance. Greensill was trying to find different insurance companies and failed to do so. In terms of a big company called, a big insurer called Tokyo Marine, they actually uh, did an internal investigation because they found that, or they allege, that one of its employees had, had you know, given out insurance that was to a higher level than that they that they that they would have normally felt comfortable right. to do. And so when that collapsed or when that didn't get renewed, it had a snowball effect on also the Credit Suisse fund, which is where most of this debt or a lot of this debt was packaged into. And when they mm. froze their funds, which was, you know, there were ten billion dollars worth of funds, when that was frozen, that really sort of squeezed the tap uh, for capital for Greensill. So what do we know about Cameron's involvement since that time? So uh, as Greensill started to experience difficulties and the pandemic obviously arrived, what do we know of his lobbying activities? So we know that um, Cameron was involved, uh, you know, joining Greensill as an advisor after government. But he was quite open about his role with Greensill in government. I mean, you've probably all seen that clip of the video where he asked him to stand up, you know, in, in a room uh, in front of the cameras, um, touting him as a, as a great saviour of, of sort of business, you know, bringing business friendly practices into government. You know, he certainly wasn't ashamed of this relationship. Hmm. What since happened was it's become rather tawdry in that, um, you know, he's been trying to open doors for Greensill with other governments. Uh, we had a story recently that he'd lobbied the German government even after uh, there were questions about Greensill's involvement in, in Germany. And of course, what really uh, took it up another level was the pandemic uh, and all these problems Greensill had with their insurance and so on, where they were desperate for more money, effectively, because they're having to pay out to these suppliers nonstop and they need to get money in the other end. And therefore, they were looking for government support. And that's where, obviously, you've got an ex-prime minister on the books. Who better to use uh, to ask for that government support? Uh, and he ended up uh, texting the chancellor uh, on a couple of occasions, asking him if he could uh, look again at uh, allowing Greensill to access some of the pandemic finance support the government was setting up. Mm. He did get in meetings with uh, senior civil servants. Uh, and since then, you know, one thing after another, he got him a meeting with uh, Matt Hancock. And, and since then, just one one revelation after another started tumbling out. Yeah. And uh, Cynthia, could there be more that we don't know about? Because the government has constantly used this line that, you know, we gave you the texts, you saw the communications, there's nothing untowards going on. But it occurs to me that they've just, they've released what they wanted to release. Ultimately, there hasn't been any kind of wholesale transparent disclosure has there yeah absolutely not i mean i think there's seven or eight i've lost count inquiries that are going to be looking at both green as well as the lobbying 
around the firm and the access mm. the firm had or the company had in government. So absolutely, there will be more things that have not been revealed. My Freedom of Information Act requests have been rejected on the grounds that it would take too long to search more than three and a half days uh, or 24 hours to search um, three email inboxes uh, about the contents of these meetings, which I have <laughs> questions about. Um, but I, I think what's really important also is that although Cabinet Office has been saying that, uh, you know, the, the transparency, you know, the way, part of the reason why we know a lot of this information is because transparency rules have done their job. I actually disagree with that. Yes, of course, in part, you know, did we know that the meetings existed? To a certain extent, we did see some of it. We don't know the content of those meetings. What we also don't know or didn't know through transparency rules was the fact that, for example, David Cameron, uh, Bill Crothers and Mike Hancock met for private drinks. That's not in a transparency register. So therefore, we couldn't know about this. And there could well be many, many other meetings or phone calls or texts or other ways of accessing government figures that we just don't know about because they're not being disclosed or there is no reason to, for it to be disclosed. When you look at the Bill Crothers role, that again was not revealed because it was a transparency rule that revealed it. It was more the non-adherence of the transparency rule, i.e. finding the absence of something being there is what revealed it. It's almost as if the transparency rules actually left enough of a dark shape there to notice that there was stuff missing. Andy, has Cameron been cleared, as the government claimed, for a couple of weeks, although they've now stepped back from it? Well, he's he's been cleared uh, on a technicality. The lobbying rules state that, you know, if you're an employee of a company, you're not lobbying. Uh, and he was employee of Greensill. And therefore, he was allowed to do what he was doing. I guess the, the implication is his role was known um, and recorded. Mm. Of course, the fact that he was doing the lobbying was not known. Uh, we knew he worked for Greensill, but without mm. the dog, doggy digging of, uh, of Jim Pickard, my colleague and others, uh, we, we would never have found out about his, uh, about his lobbying. So it does suggest that there's a, there's a loophole, uh, a rather large loophole there in the, in the rules. And the same goes for now we're finding out a couple of civil servants for, who were wearing two hats for a period. We're working both for the government and for Greensill at the same time. Again, there's a sort of weird loop in the rules that means if you're already employed by a private firm when you leave government, you don't have to declare it to a COBA. I, I, I found that absolutely astonishing, I must admit. I mean, I've been covering politics in one form or another in, in the EU and in, in the UK for, for 20 years. Um, and it had never I think occurred everyone, I, I'm a former <laughs> civil servant, and I think right. everyone I have spoken to has found that absolutely gobsmacking. I've not found one person who said, yeah, that happens. To round off the group of excuses that the government is using, as it were, they claim there's nothing to see because effectively their response to what Cameron was lobbying for was negative. Well, that's not 
a good answer. Um, I think transparency is so core, especially now where there's just the trust in government has really been wounded for, you know, through the pandemic and even before. So I think transparency and the extra probity of any government official mm. or former government official uh, of a stature like someone like Cameron or Bill Crothers would have been. You have to figure, you know, it's the it's not just the actual conflict of interest existing, but it's also the perception of it. But I think one point I just wanted to make about this cabinet office explanation that they have this conflict of interest policy, and that's how they figured out that uh, uh, Bill Crothers was allowed to work for Greensill, besides the fact that it's absolutely astonishing. Spotlight on Corruption, uh, which is a transparency pressure group, did a FOI, a Freedom of Information request, a little while back. And cabinet office said they don't hold any of this information centrally. So it seems like they're allowing their various heads of units to make their own decision. Mm. I think that point I still find so astonishing because they are saying this particular policy exists, but yet Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, did not know anything about it. Has no overview. Yeah. Yeah, has no overview and did not know, apparently, at least from his reaction, that other people potentially were were also doing it. And as, as Crothers has said himself, he believed that it was not uncommon, which I think is mind-blowing. <laughs> Another story that sort of developed in parallel to this is the one with the New Cumbria uh, deep coal mine, which has been approved and not approved and approved again and recalled by central government. What's the source of that vacillation over the past year? The simple answer to that is the COP26 climate summit in November. Uh, what happened was this coal mine has been a long time in the planning. Um, Cumbria County Council, who have planning authority for it, gave it the go-ahead. There were various appeals, then it got the go-ahead again uh, late last year. The government obviously has the right to call in applications and have a public inquiry. They declined to do so in January. The mine was all set to go ahead. Uh, and then a few weeks later, the government had a sudden change of heart and announced that it would actually call for a public inquiry. Now, what had changed in the between times? Huge pressure. Uh, from environmental campaigners, from David Attenborough to Greta Thunberg, and not least uh, John Kerry, you know, the US uh, envoy on climate change. And the fact that uh, ministers will be sitting in November in Glasgow asking the, the world to cut their climate emissions, chairing the UN climate talks, COP26, uh, at the same time as, uh, you know, work was beginning on a new coal mine, the first one in the UK for more than 30 years. Mm. So the politics changed very quickly. I mean, what's surprising was they didn't call it to a halt earlier or at least you know call, call for a public inquiry earlier and um, it comes down to the Tories wanting to keep these uh, red wall seats um, this this is being built in um, Copeland uh, which yeah. is a Tory held seat um, and therefore local MPs 40 over 40 Tory MPs have backed it and, and they are trying to put Labour on the back foot saying you know you you, you climate your your sort of metropolitan green tree hugging is is costing working class jobs in these constituencies but of course it's it's oxygen loving lovies that we are <laughs> um, uh, so now there's this network of inquiries I can only call it is there, do you think, uh, Cynthia, is there a strategic reason for fragmenting the inquiries, the inquiry into loads of bits so that everyone has a pretty strict remit and 
no one basically goes fishing and finds things they weren't supposed to find. I think a more broad point is that, I mean, I see this with regulatory agencies, especially when there's cross-border you know, investigations going on, is that quite often people will just look at their little backyard and they won't actually holistically look at the situation. With Greensill, as we've said before, you know, it's at its heart, it's a financial scandal. It's a very complicated financial story. You've got steel side of it and the politics of it. You've got the lobbying side of it. You've got the financial side uh, tying in Greensill with Credit Suisse. I mean, this is an international case. And in terms of the lobbying, they will look at their own particular backyard. And I guess the question is, will they do it in a way that actually really gets to the bottom of everything? Mm. I, I get a sense in the last 10 days or so that the story is beginning to have a little bit of cut through um, more generally to the public. I've, I've seen some focus group data that's saying that it's beginning to come up in this sort of narrative of democracy or corruption or cronyism or whatever you want to call it. Are you finding that it fits into that broad narrative? Is it? Does it feel like it's about to start hurting the government? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, Keir Starmer has talked about Tory sleaze, you know, reviving memories of those of us who were around, you know, with the 90s. Now, the 90s, I mean, it was backbenchers being paid to ask questions, which don't really do anything. I mean, here we're talking about former prime ministers lobbying civil servants to make decisions, mm. you know, which have huge impact. It's It's far, far more serious. And yet one wonders if the age we live in people sort of slightly raise their eyebrows. Uh, I mean, I think Lord Pickles said, you know, he'd, he'd raise his eyebrow a full quarter inch. I mean, he might have, you know, in the old days, he might have been choking on his cornflakes uh, <laughs> at the very least. So I, I do think there's an interesting question for the British public of of whether this is just, a, well, that's what they do. I mean, I've, I've done countless sort of interviews on the streets over the years, as many people have done. Old politicians are the same, you know. Mm. Uh, what do you expect? Does this fit into that narrative or do people genuinely feel, you know, this has gone too far and it's time for, you know, some more regulation and some more values? Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about a lot of this stuff is not in law. It's about morals and how people act. And yeah, how they want I totally to agree. Uh, I totally and, and, agree. Yeah, that, that's changed over the years, you know, uh, what politicians think they can get away with. So what do you think needs, if, if you had a magic wand and you could reform two or three things about the way this happens, about, you know, the, the transparency on lobbying and decision making. What would you do, Cynthia? What what do you think are the most uh -huh. urgent things? Well, slightly esoterically, but not. I think Freedom of Information Act is, as I've called it, wounded. Cabinet Office has one of the worst records in complying with Freedom of Information Act requests, quite often changing dates, um, not uh, providing information on time. And I think there's a general reluctance to be transparent, not just in the Cabinet Office, but generally. It's interesting because Eric Pickles was saying, you know, we don't necessarily have to go to thermonuclear options. But I think it's about holding people to a standards that they might not have to be in some sort of rule that, because you can't capture every rule. So 
or every potential option of something that could occur. And, and when you do, you create a loophole, like like we've discussed, you know, the several loopholes. Every time you create a very tight, tightly defined rule, yeah. that creates also a way to get around it. I think it's a mindset. It's It's a mindset to think, what could this look like? Could this be interpreted the wrong way? Am I using a channel, as in the case of David Cameron, am I using a channel that is not available to everybody else who doesn't have Rishi Sunak's private phone number and has to go mm. through his uh, his office to reach him? So it's, it's, it's about actually standing back. I think absolutely, I feel extremely strongly about the Freedom of Information Act because there is no consequences on not, I mean, pretty much no consequences on, on not complying with the law. And this is something that's very esoteric to most people. You know, it doesn't capture the imagination like, you know, a double-hatting civil servant, mm. but it is actually vital because the Freedom of Information Act is not just for, it's not for journalists, it's for mm. the people. The element that's been missing from this discussion is that all the rules, if you look at the MP's code of conduct, if you look at the ministerial code, if you look at all the rules that are in place in most democratic countries around the world, when they talk about uh, conflict of interest, they also talk in the same breath that you must avoid even the appearance of a conflict of interest. And I think that side of the, the British debate has atrophied slightly because to me, you know, the fact that Matt Hancock owns 15% of a company that's run by his sister and that's now getting NHS contacts, it doesn't matter if it's actually clean, if you could look into his mind and, and, and see that it hasn't affected the decisions in any way. It's something that shouldn't happen because it looks bad. And when something looks bad, it's corrosive to public trust. That's the whole point of the rules. But I think also there has to be a, a discussion about all this. I mean, the fact that David Cameron has a new job and he works for Greensill is one thing. Of course, you know, if you leave public office and you're still, uh, you know, working age, you should be able to work. And I think it all comes down to the transparency of it. And again, this private eye test. Just one final question. And, and I, I hope you can lay my mind to rest. I detect a sort of reticence on the part of other newspapers and other media organizations to pick this story up. They're sort of slowly doing it now, but it's like they've been dragged to it by the story becoming big enough. Is that true or is it just in my head? I, I just a couple of things on that. One, it's slightly journalistic envy. I think. I mean, you know, whenever whenever someone else gets a cracking front page scoop, you're always thinking like, "Well, is it really, you know, cracked up to be? And why didn't we get it? Maybe there's something a bit a bit wrong about it." So there's that there's that sort of competition side of it. And I think also, as as Cynthia said, although there is the lobbying aspect of this, also a complicated financial scandal, and a lot of papers uh, probably don't necessarily have the people that can understand this. We're very fortunate, you know. Hmm. I mean. Uh, Cynthia and, and Michael Pooler and others and, and Rob, and Rob. You know, have been working on this for, for years mm. uh, to mm. understand it all. So the idea that you can catch up 
you know, with a, with it, even within a couple of weeks is quite tricky. I, I think also that, you know, we will get select committee inquiries. And I think that will be where the media pitches in because that's all in the open. You know, politicians will hold other politicians uh, and ex-civil servants and so on to account. I think it'll be a lot of reporting of those and more revelations will come out because select committees, to be fair to them, do tend to um, go, go in quite hard when, yeah. when they want to. It's one point I also wanted to make in response to what you mentioned before. There's a point where this has been politicized obviously the lobbying there's a political obviously a strong political dimension to it but uh, over the weekend uh, there was a suggestion in the mail on sunday that there were moles that were briefing journalists about the lobbying which i can't speak for other journalists but like at the ft certainly that wasn't the case we've worked mostly with public records in in all of this and i think this idea that this should all become politicized, I just find somewhat ridiculous because, again, it comes down to probity and transparency, which creates trust in government. Thank you. Cynthia, Andy, our time has vanished all too quickly. Thank you for your time and for your brilliant work. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much. Holding the government to account is arduous and sometimes risky work. There are always people who will seek to normalize corruption, to say they're all at it, it was ever thus, I've seen worse, move along. They say that about every single scandal that's ever happened until they don't, and people start paying attention. But there are also people like Cynthia and Andy and Jim Pickard, Sylvia Pfeiffer, Michael Pooler, Robert Smith, and many, many others who do the hard work. Along with condemning the former, we must also support the latter, and there is one easy way to do that, log on to the FT and take out a subscription, or go out and buy their paper. Same goes for this podcast. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and support us from as little as a couple of quid. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and down. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.